Section 16 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8, The Rebellious Son, Part 1. The years of Frederick's rest in Sicily came to an end in 1235, and from henceforth his life was to be surrounded by storm and stress and passed in a struggle so endless and wearisome that his days were shortened and bereft of all gladness. The papacy was not the first disturber of his peace, for the present pope and emperor were to appear before the world as friends and were even to aid each other against their enemies, though always there was an undercurrent of suspicion and hostility and ceaseless wranglings and recriminations which in 1239 were to culminate in the inevitable strife. Meanwhile, the emperor was called away from his Apulian palaces by the rebellion of his son Henry and by the aggressive turbulence of the Lombard towns. As early as 1231, he had left his southern kingdom for a while in the endeavor to check the civil warfare which was incessantly raging in Lombardy. This portion of the empire was a source of continual humiliation to the Hohenstaufen Kaisers. The cities clung to their freedom with an obstinacy and courage that would have been entirely admirable had they not abused that freedom by the most ferocious internal dissensions. They resented the slightest exercise of the imperial authority, and if their outraged lord brought his armies to their chastisement, they would retire behind their massive walls, which were almost impregnable before the military engines of the time. The reduction of even one of the cities of the League would then entail a protracted siege, and the reduction of a score was an almost impossible task. Barbarossa had tried to solve the problem in 1162 by burning Milan, the head city of the League, utterly to the ground, but Milan had risen again from her ashes summoned the League to action once more, and crushed the might of Germany at the Battle of Legnano. The Treaty of Constance, wrung from Barbarossa by this defeat, had reduced the imperial lordship of northern Italy almost to a shadow. His grandson might have been content with this very moderate suzerainty if only this part of his dominions had maintained a peaceful demeanor, but when he looked from his kingdom, where his authority was absolute and order reigned supreme, to the northern part of Italy, which was one vast and sanguinary scene of confusion, the contrast became intolerable to his pride. And when peaceful persuasion was rejected with the most violent antagonism, he took up the task which Barbarossa had attempted with such disastrous results. In 1231, then, Frederick advanced northwards with a small following, and summoned King Henry and the German princes in the cities of northern Italy to meet him at Ravenna, where a diet was to be held and an attempt made to appease the disturbances of Lombardy and the neighboring provinces. The Lombards not only disdained to attend the diet, but by their hostility compelled Henry and his Germans to travel southwards with the utmost secrecy. Some Ghibelline cities, Pisa, Genoa, Parma, Modena, Cremona, and Pavia, sent their envoys and announced their readiness to cooperate in whatever measures the emperor should decide to take against Milan and her allies. Such measures, however, were obviated by the partial submission of the League. 
frightened by the emperor's expressed intention of punishing them for hindering his diet by their attitude, they sought the mediation of the pope. Frederick, anxious to return to his work in his kingdom, agreed to recognize Gregory as arbitrator, and in May 1232 a temporary peace was made which postponed the threatened war for four years. While in the north, Frederick first became acquainted with a noble who was to play a prominent part in the coming struggle, Eccelino de Romano, one of the most sinister figures of his century, was the representative of a powerful family of northeastern Italy. He was a brilliant soldier, loyal to the cause he chose to follow, but possessed with an inordinate lust of power and cruel to an extent that rendered him remarkable even in a cruel age. Entirely indifferent to sexual emotions and lusts, women as well as men were the victims of his cold-blooded barbarity and were subjected to the most exquisite tortures that the refined cruelty of the Italian mind could devise. Dante places him in hell in the crimson-seething flood reserved for tyrants who were given to blood and to rapine. This Eccelino, writes Salimbene, was feared worse than the devil. He held it of no account to slay men, women, and children, and he wrought such cruelty as men have scarce heard. I believe most certainly that as the Son of God wished to have one specially whom he might make like unto himself, namely St. Francis, so the devil chose Eccelino. He was a Ghibelline in politics, and as soon as the war broke out between the emperor and the league, he ranged himself on the side of Frederick and was made imperial vicar in Lombardy. Serving his own interests as well as those of his master, he made himself lord of Verona, Vicenza, Padua, and other cities in northeastern Lombardy. He always remained staunch to Frederick and shared with him the enmity of the church, to which he fell a victim nine years after Frederick's death. Undoubtedly he rendered valuable material service to the emperor, but the alliance of such a monster of cruelty could not enhance Frederick's good repute throughout Christendom. The meeting between King Henry and his father, who had been separated for twelve years, could not have been a very happy reunion. Ever since the death of his guardian, the good Archbishop Engelbert of Cologne, in 1225, Henry had followed evil courses. He had become a profligate and had surrounded himself with parasitical favorites. The government of Germany had been neglected, and its revenues dissipated in the maintenance of a licentious and frivolous court. If report spoke truly, he had even made a secret league with Milan against his father, prompted thereto by jealousy of the emperor's attachment to his second son, Conrad. Frederick would have been wiser and kinder if he had taken the power for evil out of Henry's hands, but he dealt leniently with him, and crediting his promises of amendment, even allowed him a fuller authority in Germany. The realization of his mistake was soon brought home to the emperor. Father and son parted in the March of 1232, the one to resume his wise rule of Sicily, the other to plunge still more deeply into folly and vice and to invite inevitable ruin. A madness seemed to seize upon the young Henry, the only rebellious son the house of Hohenstaufen had ever known. He sowed the seed of discontent against his father and received at his court nobles who had been banished from the kingdom. 
he endeavoured vainly to enlist the Duke of Austria and the King of France on his side. Strasbourg and many towns on the Upper Rhine were induced to cast off their allegiance to the Emperor and to proclaim Henry as their only lord. Three prelates also lent themselves to his schemes. Finally, in December 1234, he entered into a treaty with the Lombard League and raised the standard of rebellion. So grave a situation called for Frederick's own presence in Germany, and in the April of 1235 he left his kingdom to chastise his disobedient son. Gregory, for once, gave the emperor his wholehearted support and excommunicated Henry. At the same time he wrote to the German prelates and exhorted them to stand loyal to their temporal lord. We have had long experience, he wrote in bland disregard of the past, of the devotion of our dearest son in Christ, the Emperor Frederick. His son Henry, unmindful of the divine love, a scorner of human affection, is a rock of offense to the Emperor. Bring the youth back to the right path. In these times there should be peace for the sake of the Holy Land. We absolve all men from any oaths they may have taken against the Emperor. In May, Frederick crossed the Alps and arrived in Germany. In spite of the resentment the Germans might justly feel at his open preference for his southern dominions, and in spite of the rapidly increasing mischief wrought by his son, he came with the scantiest following, relying on the personal devotion of the German princes and their loyalty to his house. His confidence was quickly justified. The nobles of his ancestral duchy of Schwabia and a number of the princes, among them the dukes of Saxony and Bavaria, flocked to meet him at Ratisbon. The rebellion collapsed without daring to show its face to the emperor. King Henry, utterly deserted by all his adherents, was compelled to surrender and submitted himself to his father at Worms. The unhappy youth might have been allowed to retain his freedom, even though stripped of his power, had he not been driven by some malignant madness to his own destruction. He suddenly withdrew his unconditional acceptance of Frederick's terms, refused to surrender the castle of Trifels, once the prison of Richard Coeur de Lyon, which had been given to him as part of his personal estate, and finally made an attempt to escape from Worms. Frederick's patience was at an end. He sent the rebel under escort to Apulia, where he was imprisoned in one of the royal castles. For seven years he lingered in confinement, transferred periodically from one castle to another and closely guarded. Finally, in a fit of futile passion, he put an end to his life by dashing himself from his horse onto the rocky ground. Frederick mourned his death in fitting terms. The feelings of the father overpower those of the judge, he wrote, and we are forced to bewail the death of our eldest son. We confess that though we could not be bent by our son when living, we mourn him when dead. We are not the first or the last who have wept for the death of undutiful sons. Some two months after his arrival in Germany, and when all traces of the rebellion had been effaced by Henry's banishment to an Apulian prison, the emperor took unto himself a third wife. This time it was an English bride that he chose, Isabella, the daughter of John, and the sister of the reigning King Henry III. 
negotiations had been opened before the emperor left his kingdom, and Peter de Vinia had been one of the envoys to lay the imperial proposal before the English monarch. Henry took counsel with his prelates and nobles, and after a deliberation which lasted three days, the Princess Isabella was brought before the emperor's ambassadors. She appeared before them, writes the English chronicler Roger de Wendover, a lady in her twentieth year, beautiful to look upon, adorned with virgin modesty, and distinguished by her royal dress and manners. After they had refreshed their sight for some time with gazing on the lady, they decided that she was most worthy in all respects of the imperial couch, and confirmed the marriage on the soul of the emperor by oath, presenting her with a wedding ring in his name. After they placed it on her finger, they proclaimed her Empress of Rome, all exclaiming, Long live our Empress! End of section 16